you can, if you prefer to follow along in your Bibles, you can open to the book of 1 Samuel, and we'll be mostly centered around chapter 10 tonight. Uh, so 1 Samuel 10 will be mostly where we are, though we'll consider uh, many other verses. If you prefer to just take the verses in the verse pack, that's also okay as well. Most of the verses that we talk about will be in uh, that pack. So you, you have the second page on the back that has most of the verses that we're going to be speaking about or that are going to be in our, um, in our text this, this evening. Um, we have been talking about recently in the last couple of weeks the establishment of the, essentially the kingdom of God as it has come to the promised land and established in the lives of the Israelites as they've gone into the land. We saw tons of problems as they went into Judges and they just failed utterly to establish what God had given them to do. And it's for good reason. They're reprobate sinners, and so like the rest of us, and so they, they struggle to implement what God is asking them to do, step out on faith and drive out the enemies from among them. They would rather worship their gods and keep, them, keep the people as slaves. And so uh, God raises up Samuel in spite of all of this, in spite of their lack of repentance, in spite of their sin, in spite of all these many atrocities that they committed, God raised up Samuel, who was one unlike any we had seen up to this point in the area of the judges, because Samuel heard the voice of God and was raised in the, in the, under the priesthood and was um, a judge himself. And so Samuel was really kind of the brimmings of a man after God's own heart, if you will. He followed after God. He directed the people and led them in righteousness and holiness. And yet, in spite of all that Samuel was giving to them, and in spite of the fact that God had clearly communicated through the life of Samuel that he is directing the children of Israel, they rejected Samuel, they rejected God, and they wanted a king like all the rest of the nation. And we saw that just having a king and expecting a king was somewhat anticipated in the story up to this point. There was going to be a day where that happened. And we know the book of Ruth is nicely situated just before 1 Samuel. And so there's the anticipation at the end of the book of Ruth that David is coming. But in spite of all of that, they didn't want to wait on the Lord to provide the kind of leader that would be a man after his own heart. And so they wanted a king, and we want it now. And so we get Saul. This is less than ideal situation, however. But Saul, who is supposed to be a shepherd of God's people, when the story opens in 1 Samuel chapter 9, this great shepherd is doing what? In 9... Not yet. He's what? Can't even find big old donkeys. He can't find some big old donkeys. Uh, lots of donkeys have gone missing, and presumably they're under Saul's watch, and he is appointed to go find them. And so we find that the shepherd of Israel, whom the people are demanding, can't keep track of his donkeys. All right? So he goes wandering around and tries to find these donkeys. And encounters a woman at the well who tells, her, who tells him that, hey, wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, you happen to be in the city on the day that the seer is coming to town. 
uh, and so you need to go meet him right now. And so he goes to meet Samuel, and Samuel says, uh, Samuel gets a, a premonition, a word from the Lord that says, that's the guy that I've been telling you about that's going to be king over the people. And so Samuel says, uh, greetings, your donkey's been found, don't worry about it. And so that kind of gives him like, a, oh, this guy knows some things. And so they go into this feast, and Saul has absolutely no idea what's happening. And there Samuel is, he in chapter 10, verse 1, the very beginning of chapter 10, he pours oil over Saul, he anoints him as king, and he gives him the priestly portion of the food there at the banquet there, there for Saul. Now, <clears throat> let's just pretend for a moment you're Saul. What are you thinking? Who is this crazy old man? <laughs> and why did he pour oil on my head, right? Uh, <laughs> Saul's just, you have to understand, Saul has just been sort of immersed in all of this and has no idea what's going on. And I think that's going to play a lot into our story. But before we get there, I want to deal with some of the chronology, the chronological aspects. When is this all taking place? And so we've talked a little bit around it, but now I want to deal with squarely what's happening in terms of the chronology. There's some difficulty, though, because apart from the period of the judges, the 11th century in, his, in Israel's history, the 11th century B.C., is potentially one of the most difficult centuries to figure out when all the times happen. And you're going to see why in just a moment. Um, we have, so in order, in, in order to get what happened in the thousands, 11th century B.C. is thousands, okay, the 1,000s. It's always, it's always hard for me. I don't know why, but it's always, I have to think about it for a second. So uh, in order to get all of that, we have to go back to some dates that we absolutely are certain about that either the text gives us or that we have some, at least some certainty too. And so there's pretty good certainty that the division of the kingdom happens at the end of Solomon's reign in 931 B.C. Okay, so we've got that date, we're pretty sure, 931 B.C. And what we also know is that based on 1 Kings 11.42... Um, that it says, and, and, the and, and the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And so, not hard to go from 931, add 40, and what do you get? You get, it skipped twice, I'm sorry. Hopefully you got that really quick. Hang on, we're coming. I did hit it only once, but it did skip twice. I promise. Okay, one more time. Here you go. You're watching me. There it is. All right. Uh, so that gives you a date of 971 B.C. All right. David then, it says in the text, reigned for 40 and a half years. Uh, and we see that in 2 Samuel uh, 2, 11 and 5, 5. Who will read that for me? All right, so 40 and a half years we end up with as a total 
So that, that puts us now in, anybody want to do the math before I show the answer? Nope, nobody does. 1011 BC would be when he took the throne and began to reign. Um, that's not counting his anointing and all of that that took place before then. Um, now, so we got those. So we're at least in uh, the 11th century BC. We're in the thousands now, and so we're we we at least have some uh, we're having some proximate dates when David took the throne and, and all of that. And so the problem, though, is the length of Saul's reign, and it's a huge problem. We don't exactly know how long he reigned. It's difficult to kind of ascertain exactly how long he reigned. We um, see that his death occurred in the year that David began to reign. So that, that part is relatively easy. That's 10, 11. Uh, we see that in 2 Samuel uh, 1, 1, uh, where he says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. There he becomes king in 2, 1 to 4. Um, so we, we see that David has become king uh, in the year that, that Saul died. So that, that's 1011. That's, that's really pretty, that part's pretty simple. But when Saul actually uh, accessed, or his year of accession to the throne is the part that is really confusing. Um, it come, and actually, the, way, the only way we can kind of get in the ballpark is by a very unlikely source, the Apostle Paul. That seems weird, doesn't it? It's not like Paul was there when this happened, but I've got some theories on this. But okay, anyway, nevertheless, the Apostle Paul actually tells us in Acts that his reign was 40 years. Somebody read there Acts 13, 21. So pretty simple, right? There you go. Paul says it. Now, you're talking to your friend who is trying to question all this about Saul and, and David and all of this, and you say, well, Paul tells us he reigned for 40 years. What's your friend going to say? Paul wasn't there. I mean, Paul's coming on the back end. He's, what is he, a thousand years later? How does Paul know that Saul was on the throne for 40 years. Here's one of the big problems. Now, some of you who know your Bibles super well are going to say, wait a second, my Bible tells me how long Saul reigned. I, I know Saul reigned for 40 years, and my Bible tells me so in 1 Samuel 13, 1. Um, so it doesn't say it in the ESV, but in, in the NIV and in several other translations, it will tell you 40 years. Well, well there it is. Well, not really. Um, so what we have right now is we're looking at if Paul is right, 1051 to 1011. So Saul would have taken the throne at about 1051. What we have, though, in 1 Samuel 13, 1, is a textual Corruption. All right. The, it, what it literally reads is right there in your packet there at the bottom of page one. I've got it in italics after the words textual corruption. It says, Saul was something years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel two years. 
He didn't reign over Israel two years, just only two years, right? So there's, there's some words that are missing in the actual Hebrew text that we have no idea what it says. And many of your New Testament or your Old Testament translations will indicate this. We don't know what these years are. We're just assuming. We're kind of putting in numbers or we're trying to make the best sense of the, the text. I think the ESV does a pretty decent job of making some sense of it. It says Saul lived for one year. And the reason it says one year is because Saul was, and that word there is year instead of years. So they think, well, maybe, it's, maybe what it's trying to say is that he was there for, or he lived for one year and then he became king. Maybe that's what it's saying. Uh, when he had reigned for two years over Israel, then this event takes place after in 1 Samuel 13.1. Okay, now all that being said, what does it mean that there is a textual corruption? How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? All right. Um, we have, when it comes to Hebrew, we have what we call the Masoretic Text, which is the vast majority of the text you're going to find uh, to be able to read the Old Testament Hebrew is going to be the Masoretic text. And that, the Masoretes are the ones that recorded the Hebrew text, but the earliest date of that is like the 9th century A.D. That, does that feel weird to anybody? 9th century A.D.? That feels like a long time away, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls are huge for Old Testament scholarship because when we found them, Many of them dated to the 1st and 2nd century B.C. And, not only that, large sections of Scripture were found. Virtually every book in the Old Testament, except for Esther, was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so what that did was it allowed biblical scholars to open up the Dead Sea Scrolls and to compare the text that we have of the Masoretes in 900s, roughly, with the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very little discrepancies were found that, well, none that actually amounted to anything, but very little discrepancies are found between the two groups of text, which is, which is encouraging because that means that the Masoretic text is, is fairly well preserved. But the problem is where the Masoretes didn't have any text, uh, neither did we, until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which supplied a lot of things that we were missing. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Now, when it comes to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel is one of the, has one of the most missing pieces of any book of Scripture. Okay? So, when it comes to things like this, a lot of your Bibles are going to indicate in there, we don't, we don't know, we just don't have the words here. Now, we know that the biblical author was trying to give us the, work, the number of years that Saul reigned. But uh, we just, over time, it either got scrubbed out, we haven't found the right text to give us the number of years, and, or whatever. So right now, we just kind of go, well, we don't know, but he reigned for a number of years. And Paul tells us in the New Testament, it was 40, and so we're going with 40. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> Questions about that? Go ahead, Jeff. So, like, every section so far on this page is all the 40, 40, 40, 40. And I've heard some people say that 
Um, so let me correct something and then answer your question. Uh, 40 would be a generation. So typically when you talk about uh, there were three generations, mostly people are thinking 120 years, okay, um, that a generation would be 40 years. Um, that being said, David does have a little bit of a change there. It's 40 and a half years. Um, so that's slightly different. Uh, did Jackson already point that out to you? <laughs> um, and so I, I would say no, that's not the case, mainly because the years actually add up. So the year of the split of the kingdom, we know the year of the temple being built, we know. Um, so some of those things we, we actually know that fall during Solomon's reign. And so the, the years for Solomon, they reconcile with what we know of the timeline of history. Now, that being said, sometimes it is difficult to peg timeline. And sometimes it is tough to tell when an author is being round about his numbers. Paul could be being round about his numbers. He might be saying, hey, he reigned for 40 years, and he may reign for 41. He might be trying to just give you a round number. Um, but we, we don't know. So it wouldn't shock me if we found a text, you know, in the Dead Sea, with the, in um, Qumran, that came from another Dead Sea scroll that said he reigned for 41 and a half years. And I think that would perfectly reconcile with what Paul tells us in the New, in the New Testament. But... So there could be some being round there, but I, I don't, it doesn't seem like that with David's case. Go ahead. So my brother, um, who is dyslexic, has questions about things like this. So um, he would say that when we encounter something like this, that it means that the word of God can't be trusted, that it's, it's not infallible hmm. because it has like a mistake or at least a room for a mistake. Yeah, right? yeah. So It's important when we talk about biblical inerrancy that we always say we believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts. None of us would be so brazen to claim that what we have preserved for us now is exactly equivalent to the, new, to the original manuscripts. Um, and the reason that's important is because we know there are discrepancies between, you know, two different texts that we may find in the dirt somewhere. Um, and for the most part, all of them have been well documented. We know what they are. We have so many copies of Scripture. Um, th so there's, a, there's like a thousand different things I would say uh, at this point, and I'll keep it brief. But we have more copies of Scripture preserved than... and. and closer to the original than take a, take a old text, Homer's Iliad. The closest we have to Homer's Iliad is like a thousand years apart from the original time of writing. And um, I, I take that back. I, I think I'm getting my years wrong. I think a thousand AD is the closest we have to Homer's Iliad, and it was written, I want to say, uh, 1500 BC or so. So you're talking about a massive gap between Homer's Iliad and the most recent text that we found of Homer's Iliad. And when we find a text like that, we have, you know, a handful of Homer's Iliad or, you know, Plato or Aristotle or any of these other texts. When it comes to the Bible, we have an embarrassment of riches. We have so many texts that we can easily catalog 
all of the discrepancies. And for the most part, text-critical scholars, I'm not pointing to me, I'm saying text-critical scholars will take in the text, they will compare all of the text that they have with, let's say, John 1, 1, right? So they'll compare all of them. They'll see all the discrepancies. They'll date the text as far as when they think that text was copied. And then they'll be able to tell where it came from. So you get a guy in Egypt who gets a copy of John, and he starts writing down the Gospel of John, and he makes an error. And then the guy that takes his text and copies it, he makes the same error because he copies that same thing. And then it, it goes down the line. And so you, scholars have now gotten to the point where they can look back and go, that came from Egypt because that, the original error was there. And you'll look at one from you know, somewhere else, and they'll see, no, he preserved it correctly because this predates the Egypt text, and it's the, it, it makes sense, right? It, it makes theological sense. But So a lot of, with most every uh, discrepancy that we find between two texts, two manuscripts, we know what those errors are. And, shocker, they don't change anything substantively about our theology or our doctrine. Um, there was a, a, it hasn't been released yet, I don't think, but I think it is coming. There's a lot of dating that goes into this, but it was found, um, this is probably about 2012 or so, um, a copy of the Gospel of Mark, part of the Gospel of Mark, that was fir- dated at least early dating has it in the first century. Um, that can change, but as last I heard, it was dated to the first century. And um, there were no differences. In fact, it was exactly like manuscripts that we've found uh, to this day. And some of that leaked early, and there was some discrepancies and battles about it, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. Like, so the Masoretic text was the one really huge one. The Sea Scrolls was the other really huge one. But we have older copies of all this stuff, and we have the Septuagint and everything. So yes. Right. Like, the Sea right. Scroll popped up in the 20th century. We're like, oh, the Old Testament. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that is a good, a good point of qualification. There are many other texts that supplied, in case you didn't hear what he said, there are many other uh, texts that we have that supply for us the Old Testament. Um, so we have the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. That was done in uh, 100s BC, I believe, roughly. Um, and so that was translated then. Jesus's Bible probably was the Septuagint for the most part. Uh, Paul's Bible, we know from the way he quotes it, was the Septuagint. And so um, the, the Old Testament was well settled and everything like that. Every, we, we, we've had many, many manuscripts that testify to it. But when it comes to the vast majority of the Hebrew that we have comes from the Masoretic text. And when we have discrepancies there, the Dead Sea Scrolls really help us out. Now, have you ever heard of, of people that are King James only? People, you know King James only? One of the, one of the massive uh, downfalls of King James only is that King James did not benefit from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there's... What, what? What? Oh, say it. Go ahead and say it. So in the passage where it says that Moses came down from the mountain and his face was veiled because of glory, Jerome mistranslated it and it made its way to the Bible that he had horns. Yeah. Um, 
So there you go. So the Dead Sea Scrolls end up correcting a lot of that along with, I mean, there, there's so many other things that we've found like the book of Revelation that King James was not privy to um, that uh, was just kind of made up. So there you go. Uh, it's uh, yeah, a, <laughs> I probably stumbled off in it there, but um, you, get the, <laughs> you get the idea. Uh, so there's a lot of helpful things there. So when we talk about, I wanted to just pause for a second and talk about textual discrepancies because I know that there's probably a lot of like those kinds of questions like, how do I deal with that? And you have to just remember that what we've affirmed as a church has been the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And what that statement will clarify, you can go on our website, you can download it, you can read it. It's rather lengthy, so you might want to pack a lunch. But um, <laughs> you can... Uh, but you can download it there and you can read it and it, it will explain and will verify and, and as what we're saying now and we have to be very careful to reassert is that we believe it's uh, inerrant and infallible in its original manuscripts. What we have today is going to have corruptions in it. We know what those corruptions are and they don't substantively change our theology in any way. And so uh, I think what we could say about the Bible more so than Homer's Iliad or anything else we can trust what's written here and that the truths that are here are enough to train and equip us for life and godliness. In all likelihood, probably Paul had access to something that we don't in that text. That's my guess is probably what, what happened, but nevertheless. Question? Uh, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She said, isn't uh, the Hebrew culture an oral culture? And so a lot of this is going to pass, be passed down orally. Yes, you have to remember the New Testament gospel writers didn't record their gospels until years after Jesus ascended. These are, they're working from Holy Spirit-provided memory of these events. But, they, but you would be amazed if you go over to an oral culture like you'll find in Africa and many other places. When you tell a story, they repeat it like verbatim. China, we were in the hills of China sharing the gospel, and you tell them this 15-minute long presentation of the gospel. And every time, now I'm taking the translator's word for it, okay, to be on to full disclosure, all right? But uh, we would tell them the story and every time we would ask them, can you tell it back to me? And they would tell you verbatim. It would take them 15 minutes to retell the story. So when you encounter these oral cultures, you would just be amazed at how well they memorize story as they're hearing it. And so that's certainly true. Um, there's going to be a lot of oral tradition that is going to be passed down that saw, uh, Paul, the apostle, probably well knows as well even if he didn't have the text that's in front of him. So, any other questions about that? Hopefully I can answer them. Okay, well, if you think of one, ask. Um, all right. So then um, what we have then is we have, uh, at least according to the Apostle Paul, we would have 1051 uh, being the day, the year that uh, Saul accessed the throne. Um, and then what we also have is some supporting evidence to Paul's statement that there's at least some credibility there. And that comes from Ishbosheth, who is a son of Saul. Ishbosheth, you'll also hear him called Eshbaal in the, in the text. Um, Ishbosheth 
takes over the throne after Saul is dead. And we'll talk about that as we get to David and his reign and all that kind of stuff. And Ishbosheth. But Ishbosheth takes the throne when, uh, when Saul dies. And it says he was 40 when he began to reign. That's in 2 Samuel 2.10. But what happens is we get a list when Saul accesses the throne, when he takes over as king, we get a list of Saul's sons that don't include Ishbosheth. And then later on, we get another list of Saul's sons that do include Ishbosheth. And what that typically means is that the son Ishbosheth, in this case, was born during his reign. All right, well, that would make sense if he was 40 years old when he began to reign and was born after Saul took over the, the throne, that, that would, at least the years would approximately line up. And so it's not without warrant that the Apostle Paul says, 40 years, and that we would say, yeah, he's probably 40 years as his reign, so roughly 1051 is about the date, all right, that he took over the throne. Good? All right. Everybody's like, (laughs) that's what, (laughs) that's what uh, Jeff was saying. There are a lot of 40s. Don't worry. After Solomon, we'll see a lot less 40s, all right? Uh, And we'll see, it gets harder though, because after Solomon, we get two kingdoms that we got to keep track of, and then it becomes infinitely harder. And then when it comes to like chronology and all that kind of stuff, we're probably going to spend a little time on it because <laughs> it's, it gets pretty difficult. Okay, anyway, um, so Samuel, uh, back to the saga here. Samuel is, has anointed Saul king, and he tells him that he's going, he gives him basically three signs. Now, back to the question, the original question. If you're Saul and you encountered, uh, you're looking for your donkeys. And that's the reason he went to Samuel in the first place was to look for his donkeys. Remember, and to maybe get some inclination from Samuel as to where his donkeys might be. And so he goes to Samuel in hopes that he'll find his donkeys. And Samuel says, don't worry about the donkeys. Come with me before he can even say anything. Okay. So then Samuel sits him down, gives him the priestly portion, uh, hails him basically as king, anoints him, pours oil over his head. And if you're Saul, you've got to be thinking at this point, what in the world is going on? I went from shepherd over some lost donkeys to king over Israel in about a half second. That's going to do something to your brain a little bit. All right? So at least somewhat. So Samuel tells him after, he said, after he's been made king, why don't you go from here, go all the way back, and I'm going to tell you what, you're going to, you're going to give, I'm going to give you three signs that you're going to see along the way. Not, not signposts, but things. Miraculous events or events that are going to take place that I'm going to tell you about beforehand. Why? Why would he do that? Why do you think? Exactly. Exactly. Saul's noodle is cooking at this point. And he's thinking, I, I don't know what just happened. So much so that when he gets back home, his dad's going to ask him, you know, where have you been? And what, what happened? Where'd you go? I mean, all this time. And he's like, he tells him about the donkeys and something else. And oh, somebody told me they were found. And he just kind of walks off and doesn't say anything about being made king. All right, doesn't really want anybody to know this happened in case it's not real. But 
along the way, he does get confirmation from these three signs. The first sign is that Saul's going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb at Zelzah. Um, so he's going to meet uh, three, three men or two men at um, Zelzah, and they would assure him that the lost donkeys had been found. You see that in 1 Samuel 10 too. Second, he's going to encounter three men at the Oak of Tabor. Uh, they would be on their way to worship at Bethel, and they would share two loaves with him. Again, these signs are not, they're not significant in you know, what, Saul, what they provide Saul in, in any way, uh, like in the loaves of bread, but they give him the assurance. That's, that's the part of it. But then comes the real clincher, because the last sign is going to be that he would, he'll go to uh, Gil, uh, Gilbeath Elohim, which means hill of God, He's going to go to this place where people are going up to worship, which is a Philistine uh, fortress. And there's going to be a procession of prophets that are around that are going to be prophesying. And Saul is going to join them. And he is going to begin prophesying. Now, what the Bible is careful to tell you is that the Spirit is going to rush onto Saul and he is going to begin prophesying in the way that the other prophets are doing. And this is going to be confirmation. And what we see throughout the Bible is that these times where the Spirit confirms that He is indeed with you, there are signs that accompany that. And so we're going to see, we've seen that in the judges already. Now we're seeing it in the kings because there's some significant events that are taking place in Israel at this moment. And so how else would Saul have confirmation that indeed this strange event and this very weird man that he has met actually did give to him uh, the true anointing of the king of Israel? Well, that's how. There's confirmation that follows it. All right. So um, Samuel then tells him, you're going to meet me at Gilgal. Have that up there yet? You're going to meet me at Gilgal later. And when you meet me at Gilgal, you need to wait. You're going to wait for seven days. Wait for me. Don't move. Wait for me when you get to Gilgal. Just remember this, Saul. Tuck it away in your brain. When you get to Gilgal, you're going to be there for seven days, and you need to wait for me. All right, you got it? We all know. He needs to wait. Should he go ahead or should he wait? He should wait. All right, just to ask one more time, what's Saul to do when he gets to Gilgal? Wait. All right. You know it. Saul doesn't seem to. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But uh, Saul doesn't remember that he's supposed to wait. For seven days, he's supposed to wait. Remember, Saul, wait on Samuel when you get to Gilgal. Just tuck this away, Saul. Remember. Um, so Saul finally makes it home and he doesn't really want to tell his dad what happened to him. Hey, what's, what's going on? What happened? His uncle, what, what happened? Don't worry about it. We heard the donkeys were fine. So that's, that's really all. There's nothing more that took place. Uh, don't ask any more questions. Okay. So once Samuel, once Saul gets back home, Samuel calls all the people together at Mizpah and he calls the, the Israelites together for a public ceremony. Here they're going to anoint their king. This is going to be a, a confirmation of God's provision. This is going to be a celebration 
a coronation, if you will, an investiture of Saul's reign as king, the mighty triumphant hero who's bigger than all the rest. He's going to lead them into victory, and he's going to conquer all their enemies. And so Samuel walks them through a process of casting lots. Okay, Lots were an Old Testament way of determining the Lord's will, essentially like rolling dice. Okay, Think of it like that. So they're casting lots to determine the Lord's will. Now, Samuel already knows the Lord's will? Yes. Saul already knows the Lord's will? Pretty sure. The people do not. Okay? So it'd be one thing for Samuel to stand up and say, the Lord has told me Saul, king of Israel. He doesn't do that. He says, let's cast lots. We'll see who it falls on. And we know it's going to fall on Saul. Okay, which it actually does. And so here's the irony of ironies, though. As they trim down the tribes and they get down to the tribe of Benjamin, they get down to the right family, eventually the lot is cast and it falls on Saul. The irony of ironies is that Saul is nowhere to be found. In fact, Saul has hidden himself amongst some luggage. Here's the other irony. The luggage that he hides himself around is, is um, military equipment. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> because here is the guy who's going to shepherd Israel and win all these battles. And he has taken the armor that they're going to fight the battles with. And he has hidden behind it so that no one can find him. All right. So the people are like, all right, we found our king. Where is he? So they go looking, and they can't find him. What do they have to do? What do you, you remember the story? What do they have to do? They go, they, go find, they go looking for him. They can't find him anywhere. And so they're left with one solution. Look in verse uh, 22. Somebody read verse 22. It's on your back, biggest passage there. It's right in the middle of it. Somebody read verse 22. So they inquired of the Lord again, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm sorry. So, so the people have found their king. But in order to really find their king, they have to go back to the Lord and ask where he is. I love that. That's hilarious. So, uh, Lord, you can just imagine them taking their hats off and putting it in their hands and just this humble position of, well, there's a problem, Lord. We, we can't actually find him. What? This conquering hero you can't find? Really? He's hidden himself among the baggage. You know that has to be kind of a... I don't know how it doesn't occur to the people at that moment that, like, we might have made a bad choice here in doing this. But, like, they, they, they hear what God is saying, and they're like, great, let's go find him amongst the baggage. And it seems to never occur to them that, like, Saul seems to be a bit of a coward. Do what? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, it's pathetic. Um, so the... 
like the lost donkeys that had consumed the, the searchers, namely Saul, um, when they, look, when they uh, uh, found Saul as the king, they had to go look for him, and he was not to be found. What I think all of this is driving towards, in fact, you will hear me say this, I hope you hear me say this, if you haven't already, a million times. The purpose of the Scriptures is to teach us to depend on God. In fact, the purpose of trial is to teach you to depend on God. Have you noticed that um, there are often times where you enter into these trials and the, the things where you seem to be the most crippled and hurt and devastated are the things that you've been depending on the most. And the reason they hurt so much is because you have depended on them. But the entire process of the Christian life is removing all forms of dependence away from His children until you learn to depend solely on Him. And then there's moments where you think, okay, I've got it. I'm depending only on God. And then he goes, really? What if I pull on this right here? And you go, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know I was depending on that. I didn't know I was depending on finances. I didn't know I was depending on my spouse. I didn't know I was depending on my kids. I didn't know I was idolizing all of these other things in my life until they're kicked out from under you and you don't have them anymore. And then you realize, I have nowhere else to turn. That is precisely the point where God wants us. It is the purpose of all of it. And I think the driving point here, even in this text, is to remind them again, no matter how many kings you have, no matter how big you think you are, no matter how many battles you think that you've won, you're still going to need me to find your king. No matter what. And so we see this happen in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Matthew's fresh on my brain, but it happens throughout the entire New Testament. But we see this especially in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What is he, what is he talking about? He's talking about people who have lost everything and who have nothing of value to the point where they depend solely on Him. And then we think, as we get older, like, okay, I've reached a point in sanctification where I think now I am solely dependent on the Lord. And then your health goes. And then you realize, oh man, I was really far more dependent on my health than I thought I was. You give us the flu for a day, and we're like, are you coming now, Lord? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, when your health goes, you realize how much of a dependent crutch that has been for you. The entire process of our life, all the way up to the moment of our death, is kicking out all the crutches from underneath us. And there's a reminder even here as they have 
tried their best to reject God, as they have tried their best to separate themselves from him, there is this biting reminder, you can't even find your king because he's a coward. I know where he is. He can't hide from me. Questions? Comments? Concerns? Yeah, go ahead, Shannon. Yeah. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You would think. Um, so there, there's alarm bells. There's got to be. Well, to answer your question, no, there's probably no alarm bells because I don't think they care. Um, but the alarm bells are not only there, they are going back to the end of Judges. The tribe of Benjamin is the one that kills that girl at the end of Judges. The tribe of Benjamin is the one that's decimated to 600 people. And the city of Gibeah is where it happens, which is where Saul is from. So alarm bells, there should be a thousand. Not, I mean, more recent than Genesis. There should be thousands. There's not. But it's part and parcel of the whole story. They've rejected all that God has given to them, and they don't care. Go ahead. Well, but you have to understand, Samuel does. Samuel sees the fact that they asked for a king in the way that they asked for a king, not waiting on the Lord's timing, as a rejection. He initially takes offense to it, and God tells him, it's not you, it's me, right, that they've rejected. And so it's clear that Israel is in sin. And what Samuel actually tells, we didn't read this part, but at the very beginning of 1017, when Samuel calls them all together, he says there in 18, uh, the Lord, th- thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, I brought uh, up Israel out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians. But then look at 19. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel, to some degree, uh, like Moses with the golden calf, is just giving them what they deserve and, and resigned to say, okay, well, the Lord has told me that you're rejecting him and that you're in sin. So fine. I don't have a say in any of this, essentially. So, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the king that they asked for, which we know God was preparing, but the king that they usurp his timing and ask for is in some ways a judgment on Israel. And all the alarm bells should go off. But doesn't that always happen when there's judgment? Shouldn't the alarm bells go off? I mean, shouldn't we all be thinking like when... Things really turn sour. I think God may be judging us here. Shouldn't they? But then they don't. And then we get on the other side of God's judgment. And we look back and we go, hindsight's twenty twenty. That was judgment. Is <laughs> what that was. You know. But when you're in the midst of sin, everything seems logical. It seems to make sense. In spite of the fact that everybody else is looking at you like you're a fool. Yeah. Questions? Comments? Thoughts, fears, hopes, dreams. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's get out of here. Heavenly Father, 
uh, we are reminded in your word yet again to trust in you. Uh, the theme of the Old Testament, trust in you. The theme of the study that we've been doing of the promises that you've made, it reiterates to us over and over, trust in you. Um, and we see those promises fulfilled in the New Testament that we had no reason to doubt. But then we get new promises in the New Testament and we are so tempted to doubt them. And when, it, when the rubber meets the road, it, it is very difficult to actually trust. You know that. You know that in my own heart. You know that in the heart of every person here that it is difficult to trust. It's difficult to believe sometimes. It's difficult to follow. It's difficult to really, in some ways, throw up our hands and just rest in knowing that you are our sovereign creator who cares for us and who will work all things according to your will. That's difficult. We pray for the guts that it takes to do it. To know that what you have given to us in the past is a model and a promise of what you will give to us in the future. And we know that that's true. I pray, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through at this moment, but you do. And so I pray that in the moments where we are tempted to flee into our own wisdom and to attempt to do things by our own devices, that you would simply correct us, discipline us as your children, and bring us back into a place of trust. We know that comes with suffering. We know that comes with many things as you kick these crutches out from underneath us. But we know that it is for our good and for your glory. And so we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen.